0: Greetings, dear listeners. This week we invited Samuel Moyne onto the show. Sam is Chancellor Kent Professor of Law and History at Yale University, and the author of several books that are quite relevant to today. He's also a very careful, attentive, and provocative historian, and a critic of American power. Shadi and I have been talking about having Sam on for a while, but our recent arguments about human rights made it feel like the perfect time to have him on. We think you'll really enjoy the conversation. Before we get started. A reminder to head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and consider becoming a paying subscriber if you're not one yet. And don't forget to give us a like and review on your favorite podcast app. With all that out of the way, on to the show. Sam, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh as I was saying to you before we started recording, it's a real it's a real treat for me. Uh I had uh I had I believe I I I you know as your books have come out, I known I've known they're important books, and I've bought them on my Kindle, and they've been sitting there, and I just hadn't gotten around to them. And it was such a exciting idea that we came up with to have you on the show, uh, which then just made me sit down and read all of them. Um, which is uh Uh, Really a treat to do as well. I really uh, encourage our readers to uh, check out your books. Um, Your most recent book uh, is called – hold on a sec. Let me pull it up so I'm not mispronouncing it – Liberalism Against Itself, uh, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Times – but the reason we wanted to, I think, sort of kick off this conversation with uh, an earlier book of yours uh, is, the, uh, is, is the war in Gaza um, and all the sort of debates that have sprung up about it. I think Shadi and I have been uh, tilling this ground uh, pretty energetically for the last four weeks. Um, the book is called Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War and so sam you know there's so much to talk about um i think maybe the way to sort of kick us off is a simple question um is what we're seeing in gaza a humane war
1: well you know i i would say maybe there's no such thing as a humane war and and i've used the phrase uh at about various events um and it, it, it's in part to get a rise out of people and get them thinking and in a, in a particular kind of conversation. I, I would say you can humanize war. You can move it down a continuum towards greater constraint for more humane conduct uh, of hostilities. And actually, Israel was a pioneer in this regard. Um, because part of what I think has made humane wars or more humane wars what they are in our, our day is that it's not just about moral standards but about appeals to the law um, as providing a kind of adequate set of constraints. And Israel was running a humanized occupation um, for, for years and its judges... Uh, played a big role before September 11th, 2001, in, in making the state obey its interpretation of humane legal constraints. And I think after a, a brief pause uh, after September 11th with torture and all the rest, the America kind of joined in. And of course, as a much bigger and more important player fighting in more places, I think it's had a, a bigger effect. So no, maybe there can't be such a thing as humane war, but, um, you know, there can be humanized war under law. And I think we're seeing a, a version of it today.
0: I mean, that I think, yeah, I mean, Shadi going to jump in for sure. I, just to, to clarify for readers, I mean, you know, uh, I guess it was sort of a, a, a weird question to start off from if for someone who hasn't read the book. I mean, the, 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 the thrust of your book is in fact that you know there there have been two movements, uh, maybe to oversimplify, but two large, broad thrusts at dealing with uh, you know the emergence of modern warfare and the destruction. One is is uh, what might be uh, characterized as, as a peace movement and the other one being, as a mitigation movement to mitigate the the the, the excesses and horrors of war and, and limit civ, uh, civilian casualties, and, and that's what you term humane war. So, I just with that as background, Shadi, you wanted to jump in right there.
2: Yeah, and and maybe just to provide more more background about what I take to be a really innovative argument is that making more humane, making war more humane paying more attention to civilian casualties, having much more precise targeted bombings, all of that has lowered the civilian death toll in at least American led wars in the last two decades. But what it has allowed is for us to feel more righteous and more moral, and therefore we can tolerate having longer endless wars because we feel that we're doing the best we can To mitigate the excesses. Now, I'm not sure that this argument really applies to what Israel is doing now, um, in the sense that there doesn't seem to be a lot of care to excessive civilian casualties. I think Israel in previous wars has at least offered up the pretense of this. And I remember um, in the last go around in 2021, the previous Israel Hamas war, I would still hear things like Israel is the most moral army, like really absurd claims. Israel is the most, one of the most moral armies the world has ever seen. And I bring that up because in your book, you mention an American general in 1902, who is quoted as saying, the American army is the most humane that ever waged war. Um I believe this is General Young in the context of um what war would that have been? I've lost track. But the Philippines, Amer- yeah.
1: American yeah, Philippines war.
2: Yeah. So but of course the civilian death toll in the Philippines um in the Philippines war was tremendous. So there is a kind of irony here that even as Um, Americans say that they're waging war humanely, obviously, in practice, they're doing something quite different. So there's always these two layers. But I think there is, I think there is something and maybe we can get into this. There is something to be proud of when we look at how the US has been much more attuned to civilian casualties, there really is a profound shift and how America compared to say Korea or Vietnam, where the civilian death toll is like in the stratosphere. And I think you make the point, Sam, that um, the Korean War is one of the most brutal in history in terms of the per capita death rate for civilians. So there has been a pretty profound shift. Um, I don't know if Israel is trying to wage that kind of war um, now. It seems that that's been thrown out for the most part. Of course, there is still this claim that you have military lawyers at every step of targeting. That's what Israeli spokespeople will insist on to this day. But I think what we see in Gaza on the ground, just the sheer numbers of people killed in what's still a relatively small population, the number of children as a proportion of the casualties, I think it's very hard to sustain that illusion, although Israel still does try to offer up some pretense. But, I, you know, feel free to react in whatever way to a couple of those different points. Um, because Israel, is, so do you feel like Israel is still offering up a pretense of this? And does it even matter?
1: well there's okay so there's so much there so um a great points um first uh you know there there were arguments way back um that said the way to achieve more humanity is by unleashing the maximum amount of violence and that's a time-honored tradition americans you know said that kind of thing It would be like humanity is is not a direct aim, but a fringe benefit of maximum force. Uh, What I'm interested in, although that's a really interesting argument, is something new where um, you don't get to unleash the maximum force. Uh, Instead, there are these constraints. Um, And I I think those kind of get innovated, you know, really recently. Um, because of new kind of cultural expectations that people bring to warfare. And so after Vietnam uh, and, and really in our time. Um, now, I'm not, I don't want to concede necessarily that fewer die as a result of this because, you know, it depends on the timeline. You know, the point of those people who said shock and awe is that you get a brief war in their theory, And so while you may get extraordinary casualties right away, the war ends. And if you minimize casualties but the war doesn't end, it's not obvious that the ultimate death toll isn't higher. However, I do completely agree with you that things have changed. Now, when it comes to Israel, there's definitely the pretense, at at least... And I think we should stop there, because to me, it's really important that internationally powerful states can reap reputational benefits by saying, we're constrained, whether or not they are. Um, And and states like mine and Israel can take the moral high ground just through the pretense. But then there's the practice. And I guess I'm I'm heartsick over what's happening, but I I guess I kind of disagree that they're not taking care because 13,000 people is not a lot uh, in the context of two million uh, and the destruction of a city. Americans did that routinely. You know, other imperial powers did that routinely, and we're talking about it. Just levels of death and injury that were in another, just another uh, you know, an, another realm. And it's not that I think that Israel hasn't, dropped constraints because they, they've they openly said we're going to stop the roof knocks and the warnings other than this blanket warning to just flee south. But to me, I think they have taken some care. And then we get this moral question, like what does it matter uh, if that many still die? Well, then we have to get into like what the rules are and how permissive the rules still are. Like what humane warfare in scare quotes, still allows you to do in terms of killing collaterally innocent human beings. There are just a lot of children in Gaza. So if you kill some people, a lot of them are going to be children. And to me, you know, we're, we're in a domain where like, do we want to be satisfied with like bickering among lawyers with with Israel about like, well, did you really follow the rules? You know, why not talk about, you know, whether Israel has a right to self-defense under international law? Why not talk about what the political solution is? Why not talk about whether the response is disproportionate, not attack by attack, which is what uh, this humane war thing calls for, but whether like leveling a city to achieve a strategic end is like within the boundaries of what we want wars to allow. So I'm with you in the horror, but maybe where we differ is that we kind of have to take the possibility that powerful states can and do constrain themselves seriously, even in this case. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. and this is
2: an argument that I've heard quite a bit, that if Israel really wanted to commit a genocide against Palestinians, it has the capability of doing that. It could, I mean... We can we can imagine much worse scenarios than the, as bad as the one that we have now. Israel could be even more brutal or significantly more brutal. But Shadi, let I, me just I,
0: underline the point, though. I mean, I think it's an important one, and I just want to press this because I, you know, maybe prompted by you, I got in this big fight on Twitter with Philippe Lemoyne on this. But but that I think it's important <laughs> to keep in mind what Sam just said is that uh, international humanitarian law ihl basically everything israel has done so far within the confines of the law as written being that it's lawyering its strikes and i you can say they might not be doing this but i have every reason to think that they are um is within bounds i think that's that's the part that you have to underline this that that all these strictures about about law international law such as they are are written and i mean sam really does a great job underlining that in his book uh all the you know how how the united states really adapted the united states military after vietnam adapted and embraced this stuff in order um to make it useful to itself and to make it to both uh basically cleanse the sins of vietnam to show that it is a law-abiding um you know uh army and abides by these supposed norms but in fact uh has figured out great great ways to basically keep doing what it needs to do in order to you know do what it thinks it needs to do in the world
2: yeah but so part of part of the reason powerful countries try to fight more humanely as sam said is because they want to have a better reputation they don't want to be seen as evil or villains and so forth clearly whatever israel is doing with its lawyering on different levels of, of of strikes clearly isn't redounding to its benefit. Israel doesn't seem to be gaining much in the way of reputation in anything that it's doing in Gaza. So that can't be the primary reason. Um, so, I mean, right. I mean, so if that there's other motivations here, or maybe Israel feels, I actually don't know. I mean, that's an interesting question, like what is primarily motivating Israel's um, efforts to present itself as a more moral army, since clearly it's not winning in the court of public opinion. Um, It is a democracy. So I suppose one argument is that democracies, you know, do uphold or at least try to be seen as upholding certain standards because they are democracies. And the way they conduct war is just going to be fundamentally different than the way a dictatorship conducts war. I know you're skeptical of that argument, Demir, um, but feel free. Do you want to?
1: Demir, all you. <laughs> well, so so a couple things. Um, I mean, I I don't want to go as far as Demir and say like everything that, that Israel is doing is in bounds. I'm. I do think that lawyering involves you know, your side, my side, and my interpretation, your interpretation. And that means that, like, of course, you know, in anything which involves tons of different decisions, some are going to be outside the boundaries, and maybe Israel will concede some mistakes. Uh, but the point is that, like, in the aggregate, you have lots of arguments from Israel that each each strike, you know, until proven otherwise Involved the the lawyerly calculus. Um, I I take your point, Shadi, that um, you know th- that the, Israel is not benefiting, you know, on the world stage from this war. But I think it's it's controlling the the hit to its reputation that an even more brutal war would take. Same as Barack Obama came into office saying, "I will." I will not be George W. Bush, and um, I don't. You won't have to be ugly Americans anymore and feel bad about yourselves because I will fight uh, any any wars that happen to be necessary and just, humanely. And so, it's not about like fighting humanely. You know, necessarily adds to, luster to your reputation, but it does make a difference before some audiences. And I agree with you that. Um, You know, the balance of opinion in the world right now is just against Zionism. And there are lots of bad reasons and good ones for that. Uh, I think many of us think that, you know, absent some political solution, you know, Israel's reputation is condemned to decline more and more, no matter what, um, because of an endless occupation, whether it does it humanely or not. But within the context of that, if it says that it needs to fight this war, of course it's going to be better off fighting it humanely or saying it is, which is what it's been doing. I think
2: there is another another element that um, in a conscript army where everyone has to serve at some point and where there is a kind of sense of democratic ownership over one's nation – You do want individual soldiers to be able to sleep at night or you want to make it at least um, somewhat easier to sleep at night since um, your children are going to serve in the Israeli army. Everyone, you know, is going to be implicated in some way. There is something to be said for being able to say that you've upheld certain rules, maybe not to the best of your ability, maybe not as far as you could go. And I think this this relates also to how Americans view drone attacks and other other kinds of precision warfare is we wanna feel as Americans that we are better than we actually are. And there is, I think a powerful argument for doing so because if we wanna maintain our role in the world, if we want to maintain American hegemony and American dominance in global affairs, We as Americans need to believe that we are better.
0: All I'll say, though, right, is that the Israeli, this is a very popular war in Israel. And it's, I I just, I I struggle to imagine that too many soldiers are wringing their hands about what's happening. I don't know. I'll just throw that in there.
1: I I think you're right. I, I think, you know, of course, in the end, especially when, you know, there's a real conviction about it, the justice of a cause Uh, is the source of of domestic legitimacy and sometimes global legitimacy. I mean, there was an amazing thing that happened, to me the most amazing moment rhetorically in in, uh, the course of American support for the Ukraine war uh, this last summer when Jake Sullivan went on Meet the Press and he was asked, but doesn't sending cluster munitions uh, in violation, some say, of international law uh, weaken America's legitimacy, and amazingly, uh, I think, given Obama's kind of earlier rhetoric, Jake Sullivan responded, "No, it's the justice of our cause yeah. that makes this legitimate, even if the brutality of the means by which the cause is advanced seem unholy to to some." And I would say, you know, Demire's right that. Israel it's kind of amazing just how popular uh it is to think that the removal of Hamas from power in Gaza is an absolute national security imperative that you know it just has to be done and so if that's where you are then at least do it humanely but the the cause is just and the war is necessary
0: you know yeah just the other the other thing I mean uh it's something Shadi brought up in the earlier round, uh, you know, there's this question of public opinion and Sam, I mean, this is a a sort of a, a broader question for you because in a, in a way, um, a lot of the history you tell is this, this sort of, um, the ebbing and flowing of global public opinion and how it's, it's both, uh, you know, uh, people try and manage it uh you know military certainly after vietnam adopt all of this stuff as a sort of palliative to try and sort of co-opt it a little bit it's interesting how in fact you know concerns and sort of the peace movement dies after vietnam especially at the beginning of the at the end of the cold war and america sort of feels its oats again on the world stage and does what it does and you know all that stuff sort of falls by the wayside but it's a, it's um a, it's a bigger question about this this the 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 kind of I don't know how to put it, the importance of public opinion. I'm not going to say that public opinion doesn't play a role, but, you know, one thing I kept sort of coming back to when reading the book, Sam, is this, this sort of um, almost feeling that, that like, power finds a way, you know, and, and war finds a way. I mean, that's, that's sort of my, my, like, tragic, non-progressive reading of the book, and, you know, I think the what comes out, you know, your position read not too deep between the lines is i think with the peace movement not with the sort of humane war movement but but you know the, the sort of tragic way to read the book that i read it by is is that you know despite you know 200 and odd years of effort to do this um the sort of logic of 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 global politics keeps reasserting itself somehow um so i don't know I, Say a few words about that maybe like your position. And as you were writing this book and thinking about this, these sort of almost intractable questions, um, give, and, a, give, give us a little bit more of a And sense I'll just there. add
2: for context, before you came on, Demir and I got into a mini debate about how to interpret your work. <laughs> and I came, I come out of your work thinking um, that Americans do have quite a bit to be proud of that this is actually a profound shift historically in in how war is conducted by imperial or neo-imperial powers. I, so I, I see you as definitely making that argument, where I think, but I think Demir would say that you think that at, at some basic level, this is unfortunate, and that it's actually not as big a, I actually don't know. I mean, because I feel like your book is very careful and precise, if you will, in how it discusses this. But obviously, I think it's fair to say that in the end, you wish America would stop fighting wars. And you think that anything that distracts from that goal is unfortunate or tragic. And you would want us to focus on the fundamental questions of why we go to war in the first place instead of finding ways to manage wars that we're already in more humanely. But, but especially for listeners who, you know, won't be familiar with all these nuances, maybe say more about where you come out. Like what is, because I think someone like me would say that, you know, we at, at some level we're going to have to fight wars because there is evil in the world. Sure. And there are there are quote unquote bad guys. I mean, we might disagree on yeah. who the bad guys are, but there definitely yeah. are bad guys at some yeah. level. This is
1: the Israeli view right now, and you just don't you don't <laughs> believe it's factually correct. Uh,
0: That's correct. That is no, correct. no. I
2: mean, I, I believe that. Ham- I think it's fair to say that Hamas are bad guys. I I don't think right. the way okay. the war, but I I think that. Uh, it's amazing. Anyway, you, I, to...
1: I, I, I'm in your position, but, but I'm, I'm in your position not just with respect to this war, but with respect to a lot of wars, um, maybe a lot more than you, because I'm, I would be the last person to deny that there are evil evildoers um, in the world, but I just haven't seen you know, wars that don't, you know, in, in, in response, perpetrate more evil. In part because, you know, American wars have not gone well in my lifetime. I think one uh, has gone well, the first Gulf War, uh, in part because of its limited aims and because of kind of the realist uh, kind of restraint with which it was fought. Although even there, I mean, it it was also like pretty prophetically the first war in which Human Rights Watch monitored it for um, violations of the international laws of war and the first war in which military lawyers help pick targets. So it, it's a kind of interesting thing. Yeah. But um, I, I, I guess I would say, you know, I don't deny the hypothetical possibility of a just war. And if in in the case of such a war, it should be fought humanely rather than not. I mean, I, so in that sense, I think it's an absolute breakthrough that some states um, are willing to constrain the form of their violence. Um, I think where you and I differ is that I just think there aren't many such wars, especially lately. And my grandfather was in, you know, the United States armed forces in world war II. My father was in the air force. Um, you know, he didn't fight and he was in during Vietnam, but didn't fight there. Um, So it's not like I don't think there's the possibility that there can be just wars, and you know, if 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 there are, you know, then then I think it's good for them to you know be fought um, and then fought humanely, where I think um, I probably. You know maybe would disagree a bit with demir's read of of my work which is 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 i think very you know compelling and insightful is to say that it's some people's public opinion that gets honored um, and it's really the public opinion of the powerful um, because left out you know in the ukraine war uh in the it, so far although kind of maybe less so in the Gaza war is the opinion of most people in the world who really do want less great power war, who really do want a political solution to Israel-Palestine, and think that there's, there's no like question who's overall in the wrong in this Gaza war. It's but, Israel, not uh, Hamas.
0: But, okay, but so then I'm, how do we decide though? But even 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 not that though. But 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 get at the, the the that problem. I mean, we can talk about how you decide. But I mean, maybe it's it is the yeah. same question. But but I guess that the my question is more of a historical one. Um, the powerful win, as it's been throughout. The course of world history up until sure, but now. it's not a
1: constant who's powerful and struggle changes who's powerful and redistributes power and you know to me it's very meaningful that that can happen and it's happening right now. I mean well, this so, is amazing. Honestly, the the you know even the American response to the Gaza war, let alone the global one, and and it's forced the powerful to adjust, notably the. The, the Democratic administration running the U.S. government um, can,
2: can has say, had to you reorient. Can you say more? This is striking to me. Use the word "amazing." What's happening? Can you just like dwell on that for, just for a little bit more? What you find so sure. striking so about this moment?
1: What What is not amazing is that a lot of people found uh, what was what was seemingly about to happen in the earliest days after October seventh uh, chilling. Uh, You know, the whole world has, you know, as you said earlier, you know, given Israel a black eye for its endless occupation for decades now. What hasn't shifted is our government's policy. And yet uh, the default that Joe Biden tried to renew, uh, that there's just a blank check, that there's unconditional support, is being challenged in a way that I think is totally amazing. Just if you if you have seen, you know, I'm 51, the 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 just the sense of kind of loyalty of Americans, uh, and not just the US government to Israel, no matter what it does, no matter how far right it government, its government trends over 50 years. Uh, to see this, I think, is pretty revolutionary. And, you know, I think if you look at polling among young Americans, You find it even more lopsided um, against israel and it's placing pressure on american policy and therefore indirectly on israeli policy now maybe this is not the war that's going to get ended sooner rather than later or get constrained even further by humane standards because you know, Biden and Tony Blinken have leaned heavily into the laws of war to say that's the constraint that we're going to impose. Uh, but I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a really, I think the most amazing thing about the war is that it's a sign of things to come. That, you know, it's not that Israel's days are numbered, but the sense of like the American default support for Israel um, is is has eroded just substantially in the past couple of decades, and this war proves it. And
2: and I, do you, and do you tie that more broadly to the to how young people are challenging or doubting U.S. primacy in the world, or do you see these as absolutely? I,
1: you see, absolutely. so you see this as, as part of a broader. Attitudinal it is, shift. It's a far broader than that. It's youth skepticism of boomers and how they've ruined the world, uh, <laughs> and it's mostly justified. So, uh, but in this case, I think certainly, and I, I don't. I mean, I just don't imagine that um, kind of American primacy, you know, can will have the kind of popular support it's had in the Cold War and the immediate post-Cold War years just because you judge something by its acts. And I don't think young people think it's done much good for the world that See, they, I, they're familiar with.
0: I, to me, it's – it's uh, so it gets back to that, that question I had about public opinion. I mean, and this is just the lens how I end up viewing these things. Um, I – you know, it seems to me that this is now taking place uh, – in a broader context of sort of, yeah. you know, a yeah. broader erosion of American uh, optimism about itself um, that Correct. is also coinciding with um, uh, a certain kind of uh, post Cold War just military global supremacy, which is being eroded as well. So, Americans, I think, you know, young or old have much more reason to doubt whether they can dominate the world in such a way. And so then it sort of, you know, flips back on itself. Um, But, you know, what you're discussing there about the these shifts in public opinion and, you know, we'll see how 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 lasting they are. I'm still skeptical that it will have the kind of meaningful changes to American policy in the course of this war. I mean, I'm pretty sure Biden told the Israelis you have until Christmas or, you know, mid January to do what you need to do. And they're rushing to make that goal right now. Partly explains why they were bombing so hard at the beginning uh, and have now sort of eased up on a little bit. Uh, David Ignatius just wrote a column this past weekend saying they're going to be focusing on Khan Yunus next and pulling a Gaza City on Khan Yunus, which is an absolutely horrific thought. But again, it all points to me to a certain kind of timetable. And it's tied to Quite frankly, elections in America, not necessarily moral suasion in these things. So I guess I always have this kind of materialist view of these things, and why I end up downgrading global public opinion as a real driver. Now again, it's a driver. Obviously, it it, it matters enough that 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 uh, it's important to be hypocritical about. But you know, there was, there was uh, in the same way that I found um, it, it sort of morbidly amusing to watch uh, Jake Sullivan at Al you know, parade around the U.N. tallies over the Ukraine war around justice and the rest of this now to find themselves on the on the short end of the stick uh, of global public opinion. My 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 opinion of that has been like, well, it didn't matter then and doesn't really matter now. Ultimately, right. it's it's what is the United States willing to do in support of a client, basically, is what it comes right. down to. And so I don't know, you know, I, and I guess that that just brings me back to that question about um, fair enough about the powerful. And, and and uh the power centers shifting but there's there's the other sort of element that I think is so alluring in your book is is basically how how the game is kind of played right like that that basically like I said, war finds a way, power finds a way um and it's it's sort of you know it's it's it it strikes at something I think very primal about about politics and the human condition. And that's, I guess, is the question that I, I, I generally have at you as someone who, who hopes for, um, you know, uh, the, the peace option to over time prevail. The, the story you tell in the book is not terribly hopeful, apart from the part that Shadi says, well, it's gotten more humane, so that's something at least. It's, it is a sense, right, that, that, that uh, at every turn, um, that kind of groundswell gets frustrated. Is that fair?
1: Right. It is. I mean, and I think that's you know that's the the kind of problem that anti-war you know um, you know partisans like me really do need to face. Um, I, I was trying to face it slightly in this book, in the sense that I'm saying, you know, you you who have opposed Iraq have done maybe more than anyone at shaping American public opinion, the opinion that matters around infractions of the rules of war. But then don't be surprised when a politician to, to placate you removes inhumanity as a bug from a program uh, and leaves the program. Uh, Mm. And so, but that doesn't mean it's like easy to, Resist, you know, some war that isn't worth fighting and will make the world worse that you're absolutely right that it's going to be almost impossible because there are a ton of very powerful forces that in any particular instance, including just war enthusiasm will lead, you know, such things to be started. I do think there's still a concern that, um, you know, by by kind of obsessing with humanity of how of some campaign or 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 war you know there's still this really important question of the of whether the war itself is continued or ended and under what conditions. so you know i i really want to agree with you that you know i'm not kind of celebrating the humanization of war i'm saying it's kind of sinister that doesn't mean it's terrible because mm-hmm. if there's a just war, its, it's humanization is good. If, if an unjust war happens that I don't like, I still would rather it be fought humanely rather than not. But the, 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 the main question about it still ought to be whether it starts, how soon it ends. Now, I'm with you uh, completely that this administration seems to have given a timetable uh to the israelis that's very plausible to me i would say it seems like a little bit paradoxical to do so because the kind of you know people like shadi and me who are just upset about another you know another war another ukraine another failed enterprise that americans sponsor fund and arm is going to lead donald trump to be elected i mean the the erosion of support for for biden's wars it is doesn't mean people vote for trump but it might and you know trump posed as an anti-war candidate once already and won over hillary clinton in part for that reason that he successfully you know created the impression that he would fight less wars and he did by and large Uh, and so i'm very worried that like it would be. It's almost like you know, um, cutting off your nose to spite your face, or whatever, to tell the Israelis to hurry up and uh, and win, because if they hurry up, Biden may lose.
0: Well, do you have Shadi, or I mean, I can, I can. Yeah, take look, a, I'll just, I'll
2: just put some of my cards on the table, and you know, maybe some listeners will be aware of. The push and pull that's happening in my own mind, and maybe Sam will as well. I should note that Sam and I did a debate last year in a very different time, right. um, and it, so it was. An, i will include the link in the show notes. It was I lost, intelli- but
1: I was vindicated in the long run.
2: No, I'm <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I, I was actually like pleasantly surprised by that whole thing because I, what they do is they get. Um, the The public opinion out of the people who are attending at the start, and then we do the debate. And then they do another vote. And my side actually increased significantly in a way that I was even pleasantly surprised by. And we were debating whether America is um, a force for good in the world. And I was arguing yes, and Sam was arguing no, obviously, there's a lot of caveats and all that. And, um, but I was making a pretty full-throated case that American dominance is a good thing. And I think that part of me still stands by many of those arguments, but I feel like I'm facing a test now where I'm starting to doubt my own commitments. And I'm trying to just figure out where will I, Shadi, come out in this broader debate about America's role in the world. And I'm struggling with it. And Demir has seen me go back and forth. But I, I think it's much harder for me to argue that American primacy is a good thing when I see when I see what's happening in Gaza, because Israel is, is this is one of our main clients. Um, we are the primary military patron of Israel, and we have been for decades. And it's a very unpopular position for America to take for good reason, I think. So if American hegemony leads to Israel doing what it's doing, it does it does force me to sort of think twice and be like, is this the world that I want to live in? Am I really comfortable with making these arguments and trying to persuade my fellow Americans that American hegemony is a good thing? And this is what I'm sort of contending with right now. Demir, do you want to say more? Because I feel like I'm probably yeah. not the best person to describe my own internal struggle at this and, point.
0: I mean, I, I think that, that captures it. But Sam, here's, here's how I can ask you something off the back of that. Um, you know, I'm, since this started, uh, since the war in Gaza, 6th, October 7th, and then the war in Gaza uh, subsequently, um, it struck me that, that this is, you know, a particularly nasty uh, bloody, grisly episode in a broader struggle for, you know, the U.S.-led order, such as it were, such such as it is in the Middle East. And, um, you know, it's an order that Shadi himself has been quite critical of, to be fair. Uh, he doesn't like the support of Arab satrapies, uh, you know, our closest allies in the Middle East being dictatorships, and he's been very critical about that. He said, we missed an opportunity with the Arab Spring and the rest of that. But, but nevertheless, you know, like, I, I've I've always, I, I'm not a big democracy guy, unlike Shadi. And so, looking at American policy, I'm like, well, yeah, that this is American policy in the Middle East—it's what it's always been. It's how it's how America does policy. However, I'm also not like a dyed-in-the-wool anti-imperialist. I'm a am am I'm, I'm, I'm a man of, of very low convictions in the sense that I I I I. I, I, I I, I try to analyze and observe but not really prescribe and, and, and give sort of moral guidance for which way. But I guess the, the, the question I pose to Shadi, and it's a question I pose to you as well now, is um, you know, uh, to not will what is happening in Gaza. This is too harsh, but let me put it this way. To, not, to, to, will, to will against what is happening in Gaza is to in some ways will against American primacy in the world and the way America does foreign policy. It flows, it seems to me in many ways it flows directly. And I mean, there's all sorts of historical contingencies that get us here, but See, nevertheless- I want to separate
2: seems- them. So this is, I think you yeah. and Sam agree that these two things are tied together. I want to find a way, and I hope there is a way to separate them, to say that American primacy in the world does not necessitate what I consider to be an incredibly immoral stance on Israel-Palestine. Um, And maybe this, but also more broadly, American primacy actually requires that we become more moral in the Middle East, that the fact that we created this U.S.-led order in the region that is rotten to its core. And what I want to say is that for America, for us to maintain our superpower position in the world, as especially as young people demand more from us and say that we should have a more moral foreign policy in X, Y, Z areas, I think we have to start changing. And the Middle East is the sore thumb. The Middle East is the one part of the world where America has been consistently terrible, unlike other parts of the world where we've actually become better over time, whether that's in Asia or um, Latin America. We're not, it's not perfect. It's still deeply flawed. But at least... You know, Korea being, I think, Korea being a very obvious example where we used to support the South Korean dictatorship beginning in the 1980s. We put pressure on that same dictatorship and we actually facilitated South Korea's transition to democracy. That is good. I'd like to think that we're capable of doing that also in the Middle East instead of accepting, as you seem to be suggesting, Demir, that this is just the way it's always going to be. And American dominance means that there's going to be this shitty U.S.-led order in the Middle East that's dependent on autocratic regimes.
0: All you, Sam. Well, so
1: up to this point, we've been talking about um, primacy as military primacy and policy as war. And clearly, it's the case that you you could imagine an American primacy that kind of didn't edit out war and reserve the right to fight it when just um but just relied much less on war including proxy war and including you know sending arms as as a means of you know advancing justice even when no troops are involved uh it's important to go back because remember ukraine Uh, kind of redeemed the militarist premise understood in that wider sense. Uh, George Packer wrote a piece in the Atlantic called, I think a bit portentously, a new theory of American power where against restrainers like me, the idea was, you know, don't send troops. That was the mistake in Afghanistan and Iraq and just rely on arms, the arms uh, trade and proxy support and, and, I I think now that is kind of embarrassing because the Ukraine war is stalemated no amount of of aid and weapons or at least the amount that was given uh you know unfroze it after a pretty early date and then we get to the Israeli case where a lot of us are are rightly upset now If I I personally think, you know, there are not a lot of good alternatives out there. I agree with Shadi about this for the moment to American primacy in some very broad sense that, you know, anarchy is worse than American primacy. And America could, we could imagine changes in American and, you know, maybe some larger set of, of, of actors, public opinion to kind of wean America from its militarism i think you know i probably still want to actively seek alternatives and to me the global south never having had lots of power on the world stage has been pretty right about most things now that's easy for the weak to be kind of accurate and moral and not have their their beliefs corrupted by their self-interest like so many american elites um so I, I I don't exactly know what's wrong with like weaning ourselves in the long run from American primacy. It's going to have to happen anyway, um, because no nothing is forever, and 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 it's uh, we have a I think a big incentive now, especially seeing where militarism leads, not just to kind of you know cure ourselves of it, but also imagine post American. You know order that would be make the world better rather than worse i'm totally with you know shoddy that it could get worse that doesn't mean american primacy is virtuous but it means that there are a lot more vicious outcomes we can imagine so well, that's Sam, why could, there, I think we could needs,
2: there be a better kind of american primacy let's imagine
1: so for sure i mean what no if doubt.
2: what if we did become more moral and more just in our conduct in say the middle east Sure. What if I mean, there's didn't... still
1: the enlightened despotism objection, like who put America in charge and what would make that turn to virtue reliable? Well, you know, we rejected enlightened despotism at home because we concluded there's no such thing. And probably there's no such thing in international affairs, but there's no doubt that America, I mean, I wouldn't be out here agitating. You wouldn't if we didn't believe that there aren't tweaks to be made to American primacy, the question is, is it the best available choice in the long run? I, I'm not convinced. I don't see how it, it, it it's not going to be. Can, it's can going I... to fall. Every empire. Whoa, falls.
2: Whoa, okay. Okay. Wait, 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 let wait, me but... just, let me just put that. that this is important because I, I think a lot of the discussions of alternatives depends on a premise that I don't share, which is that, the u s is somehow in decline, and i I think that you know it is easy to forget that recent news if you put it, you know if you put aside obviously the the, the big the big news of Gaza right. is that you still have the u s you know really grow, its economy growing at an incredible clip um, the growth in the last quarter, even if it 's not sustainable, there is a kind of vibrance in the American economy that is really remarkable just considering how, like it, Americans are very down on the economy, Right. but the economy is actually, um, there's obviously questions of redistribution and gap between the rich sure. and the poor and, and sure. so forth. But if we just look at the American economy as as a global force, there's a lot to be encouraged by there. Um, He's a bit of an optimist, but I did just read this piece by Noah Smith about how we're entering into America's roaring twenties, that this is the American decade and that sort of thing. But it's also worth noting that this is happening precisely at a time when Chinese growth is contracting, where there's now doubts as to whether China will ever overtake the US uh, in terms of overall share of GDP. Um, and it's easy to forget that, that before Gaza was happening, this was becoming the predominant, almost a new consensus that China yes, is actually true. entering into a profound decline. And China might be a spent power. I think in its some growth way. is
1: slowing. Its growth yeah. is slowing, which is different than saying it's.
2: Its growth is slowing, yes.
1: Its economy is not currently contracting. Neither, no. is, neither is
2: ours. <laughs> Yes, it's not contracting, but that we're just seeing profound weaknesses You're right. You're right. in the Chinese economy, um, which, which suggests that we, we might not have to think about a post-American world right away. You're right that I in the long true. term, we're all dead, right? Sure. In 100 years, 200 years, whatever it might be. But for the next 20 or 30 years, we could really be in the situation where there are no real competitors to America.
1: Absolutely, I, I'm totally with you that a short and medium term agenda has to be to rethink the the way a, American primacy is exercised. So there's no doubt. I mean, I, I think ultimately you and I are also cosmopolitans in the sense that everyone's created equal, deserves freedom and democracy everywhere, and it's really there that America, you know, has has I think shown its limits as an actor, you know, uh, and, and so I'm with you, let's explore an adjusted American primacy. I think, you know, that American, you know, empire, primacy, whatever you want to call it, can't last forever. And, it, and I think it's our obligation as intellectuals to not just think in, shor- in the short and medium term, but in the long term, especially if you care about global justice and, yeah. you know, things like the fair distribution of power on the world stage, because, you know, well, there are ways of power sharing that, you know, are also moral.
0: But but I want to I want to one last
2: thing Demir. I know you have a lot. I just want to add one more thing just to put just so it's in the conversation. I think we all I I have a bias. And maybe, Sam, you share this bias to one extent or another, considering that you're American. But I love America and I actually probably love it a lot more than like um, I was going to say native born population. But I just mean like of Americans of European stock, I would say that. I think that i exceed in my like rah rah americanness because i've seen what the contrast is you know my parents grew up in an authoritarian uh, under authority you know authoritarian setting. so for me the contrast is very obvious but but because i love america i don't like the idea of thinking about a time when we're not going to be all that great and maybe that's just a bias that i'll never be able to let go but i just wanted to kind of put that out in a very clear way.
1: I like, I mean, I think that's very honorable. You know, immigrants and children of immigrants are the classic nationalists. And, you know, I'm, you know, just further down a generational <laughs> chain. My my grandfather, the one I mentioned who served in World War II, born children of child of immigrants he was a fanatical american nationalist uh, so he i think at, in fairness he lived through world war ii which maybe gave it more credibility than the life t- span you've had where it's just a very mixed record and if 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 gaza is the thing that leaves you in doubt i think it's a little bit too late uh, <laughs> to re re-examine your priors but they're totally honorable <laughs>
0: that's it for part one dear listeners there's a lot more where that came from if you're not yet a paying subscriber please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and become one help support our work hope to see you in the bonus (laughs) We'll <laughs>